0: I think I mentioned recently, beloved listeners, that uh, Barry Humphreys derided my uh, collection of antiquities as a collection of broken rubble. Well, much of that broken rubble came from ancient Rome. So I'm always delighted when we get an opportunity to talk about it on our little program. It includes, I have to say, my collection, a a marvellous ancient statue of Julius Caesar. More of him shortly. Recently, I talked to Tom Holland about his book, uh, Pax, War and Peace in Rome's Golden Age. And uh, tonight, we welcome Mary Beard back to the program to discuss her uh, book on the Emperors of Rome. And uh, it's interesting, isn't it, how we remember some of them, or think we remember some of them very vividly. The aforementioned Julius Caesar, stabbed by his mates. Hadrian, the bloke who built a wall. Nero, who supposedly fiddled while Rome burnt. And uh, Caligula, who we associate uh, with depravity. And then, of course, there's Claw, Claw, Claudius, uh, why do you remember some and not others? And how accurate are the stories that survive? Were they really like that? And what sort of world did they rule? Mary Beard is, of course, one of Britain's most highly regarded classicists and uh, has a new book that seeks to answer this, these very questions. Mary is the classics editor at the Times Literary Supplement – a trustee of the British Museum and a former professor of, yes, uh, classics at Cambridge. And she's also presented very popular and critically acclaimed uh, features and docos on TV and radio. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Welcome her back to our little wireless program. Mary, the Roman Empire spanned a thousand years. Tell us why you've selected the period from Julius Caesar to Alexander Severus. What was particularly interesting about this era?
1: Well, this is going to sound a bit surprising. Um, but it's an era of Roman history in which not much changed, right? Uh in the book I wrote a few years ago, SPQR, I was telling a narrative story of how Rome grew, how the politics changed, uh, how Rome was very different from one century to the next. When you get to this period after, first of all, Julius Caesar, then Augustus has established one-man rule, for Two and a half centuries, honestly, the system continues much as before. They don't add much to the territorial um, expanse of the empire, and the basic institutions carry on. And I thought it was interesting to try to work out how you told the history of a period in which not much changed. (laughs) Um, And also, how you Avoided, I think the trap of seeing this biographically. I mean, we're we're all very used to, I think, the idea that um, you know you can well many popular uh, versions of the biography of Caligula, the life story of Nero, the life story of Hadrian, and I think that all those are quite interesting in their way. But I think they miss out on a huge amount of basically what was the same from one emperor to the next. And so I look at the period thematically and I say, what did the emperor do all day? How did he get around? What did he eat? Where did he live? How did he make his decisions? Who did he sleep with? You know,
0: Now, let's, let's set this up by reminding the listener of the scale, the size of the Roman
1: Empire. Well, it's the, the biggest European empire, empire there's ever been it, at its largest extent. It goes from Scotland to the Sahara and from Spain to Syria. Um, uh, and it is a vast territory. And that's one of the problems that the poor old emperor, if we feel sorry for him, I'm not sure we should, but it is one of the problems that the emperor, emperor faces, which is how from um, the city of Rome in the middle of all that, you possibly can control and command what's going on uh, at the furthest extremities. And you know, if you imagine the emperor sitting uh, in his palace in Rome and uh one of his governors from, let's say, inland, what is now inland Turkey, has wanted to get a letter to him. And he's got a reply. Well, at some periods of the year, that could be three months journey each way. So how how actually do these people manage to hold this territory? They're not really at this period adding to it. We We like to think that emperors were Great military men, and they certainly pretended to be, and they put up monuments pretending that that they were, but they really didn't add to the territory of the empire. The biggest addition is Britain, and that was a bit of a mistake. Um, So, you know, what is going on that they can claim control? And I think that's one of the, you know, the big I don't knows of Roman history.
0: (laughs) Now, what was the job description for your average run-of-the-mill
1: emperor? Well, most of it was answering letters. <laughs> but I mean we have a a lovely vision and, and the Romans sometimes, you know, enjoyed this vision too of a life of luxury and depravity, you know, um endless banqueting and too much sex. Um and there was a bit of that. I have no doubt that there was a bit of that. But uh, m- what the emperor is doing most of the day is probably answering letters, making decisions, signing things off, replying to requests from all over the place that he should do something to help this local community out or that local community. Because one of the, one of the brands, one of the branding of the Roman emperor was that he was supposed to be accessible to his subjects. And there were all kinds of stories which um really underlined that. I mean, there's a great story of Hadrian, who's out in the countryside one day, and an o- old peasant woman comes up to him and says, Excuse me, emperor, I've got a question for you. And he <laughs> says, terribly sorry, I'm I'm just too busy right now. And she said, if you're too busy for me, you're too busy to be emperor. And, in other words, yeah.
0: people were demanding what we call these days transparency.
1: They were demanding transparency. They were also, they were demanding that the kind of ordinary problems that they had should be solved by somebody, and the emperor was at the top of the pecking order <laughs> for solving those. I mean, you know, you'd think that a book about the Roman emperor was just about um, uh, those, you know, posh white men in toques at the very top. But actually it's through what happens to the emperor and through all the requests that come to him that you discover about what ordinary people are worrying about too.
0: Now, the the emperor is meant to be generous. He's meant to provide for the public, you know, food and, and even monuments. Also to be able to boast of a bit of conquest in war. Yeah,
1: yeah. I mean emperors, like modern dictators, actually, they are great builders, and they are many of them are as it what we would call populists in terms of um providing amenities, sometimes cash, sometimes feasts, sometimes shows to the people i mean their their difficulty is warfare, honestly because um the Empire has got by the time of the emperor Augustus First proper emperor, it's got as big as it's going to get, and indeed, um, Augustus's instructions to his successor Tiberius was, "Don't enlarge the empire." You know, we've we've got as far <laughs> as we can go. So these poor guys are confronted with a, a huge Roman ideology that it is conquest that really brings you honor and glory. But they're not actually conquering anything very much.
0: So we're talking about what these days is called imperial overreach and uh, you've got a remarkable statistic and that is that there was only one, well, one bureaucrat effectively for every 330,000 citizens. Yes,
1: one one high-level bureaucrat, I think we must be um, clear. And they were, of course, backed up by a, a lot of soldiers. But the... In comparison with most other, even pre-modern empires, the Romans are very thin on the ground. And so they're governing, insofar as they govern the the empire, they're governing by collusion with the local elites. Um, they're, They're not imposing their will. They're not imposing... For the most part, you know, religious orthodoxy. um, And they haven't got enough people out there to really have a very heavy hand. So they're relying on cooperation and collusion with the pre existing elite class who delivers the taxes, et cetera, et cetera.
0: Talking to Mary Beard, now, when I asked you about job description, I was aware that uh, one of the things was dispute resolution, a very big part of being emperor. Mary, can you give me some examples of what an emperor was routinely asked to adjudicate on? Uh,
1: Yeah, and this is, I think, quite... Surprising because you know, the emperor in the end is the sort of supreme court, he's the final court of appeal, and all kinds of cases make their way through to him. And my favorite, I think, is a case from the town of Knidos in what's now Turkey, uh, under the regime of Augustus just before the turn of the millennium. And there's been obviously a long running Feud in the town of Knidos between two rival families. And one of these rival families has apparently taken to going and bashing up the house of the other uh, in the middle of the night. And the occupants of the house are not uh, surprisingly kind of fed up with this. And they <laughs> instruct one of their slaves to go up to the first floor. And pour out onto the heads of these marauders below, <laughs> pour out the contents of a chamber pot. Yeah, that will frighten them off, you know? Now, the slave does this, but he also drops the pot, which kills <laughs> one of the guards. <laughs> I'm sorry, this is wonderful. <laughs> and um, the local authority in Canardos are minded to say so this is first degree murder, actually. Um, but the, the the family who owned the chamber pod take this case to the Emperor Augustus who decides it was justifiable self-defense. And we know about the case because the family are so pleased to have this verdict from the emperor that they inscribe it on stone and display it back home. <laughs> what, I, what is amazing is that, I mean, Quite how they managed to get all this through to the emperor, we're not sure. They might have had, you know, they might have had contacts. They knew somebody, knew someone. But what's amazing <laughs> is that into the emperor's intray comes this case of the falling chamber pot. When we think that he must only have been dealing with absolutely mega issues, no, he's not.
0: <laughs> I'd like to bring a uh, a case to his attention, Mary about a baby born 11 months after the death of a father. <laughs> was he legitimate?
1: This came to the Emperor Hadrian, I think. We've got a woman who's got a, a newborn baby. Her husband, who she says was the father, was uh, died 11 months previously. And the question is, is this baby the legitimate son of the now-dead husband? this comes to Hadrian. And the story is that Hadrian decided to go and do a bit of research on this to find out how long a pregnancy could be. And he went off and he Consulted medical textbooks, and he came back with what even most Romans, I think, would have known was a dramatically wrong answer, which is yes, it could be the legitimate son of the husband who had died 11 months previously. But you, you get this picture of the emperor thinking, Well, I've got to go and do the research on this myself. And off he goes. And uh, the answer's pretty dubious, but his instincts are very interesting.
0: Mary. Did the emperor sometimes kick an issue back to the local officials to sort out?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably much more common than we imagine. There's a there's a wonderful long third century inscription um, from a, a, a little village in the Balkans. And they've got a complaint coming to the emperor, uh, which is that uh, the the local soldiers are coming into their town, you know, when they have a day off. And smashing it up basically, and they write to the emperor and say, "We can't stand this any longer. We really can't. We're going to we're to leave. We've got a very nice market and a very nice little spa, but we can't stand the squaddies coming in, and just doing the place over." Uh, and the their complaints go on for um, columns. What's interesting is in this case, the reply of the emperor is not like Augustus. He doesn't make a decision. He says. Take this to the governor of your local province. And my guess is, because they'd inscribed this, they were quite pleased with this response, that going to the emperor was one way of fast-forwarding your complaint. That governors must have been submerged with people saying, you know, I've lost my pig, this guy's taken this, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and there was probably a pretty large wait time. If you could go back and say, not the emperor solved this, the emperor said, take it to the governor, my hunch is that you jumped the queue. And I think quite a lot of this is probably queue jumping.
0: I'm talking to the marvellous Mary Beard. Mary, as you know, a media emperor by the name of Rupert Murdoch has had uh, succession difficulties. The <laughs> empire... Well, the emperors we're discussing also were obsessed with succession.
1: Yeah, I mean it's, in a sense, the one big gaping problem in the Roman Empire is who succeeds the emperor when he dies or is murdered, and I mean I, I think that particularly when we look at um, medieval and Renaissance European monarchies, we're used to the idea of. The eldest child, or more usually the eldest son, succeeding the dad. Um, and there are advantages of this. There are um, you know, you, you you never have to ask who's coming next, you know. Um, and they've been fingered since they were born. The disadvantage, of course, is that um sometimes they might be completely unsuitable for the job, and they get on the throne um merely because they're the eldest son. Now, Rome takes the reverse position, um, and it's not quite clear why. Um, They don't have a system of firstborn succeeds. It helps you to be the firstborn son of a ruling emperor, but it doesn't guarantee you the throne. And in a sense, there's always, at moments of transition, there's always a competition for who is going to come next. They try to Um, They try to assuage that competition in a way, and one of the ways they do that is by having the ruling emperor adopt someone specifically as his heir. But it's always a competitive process. It's always thought about. Forgive
0: forgive me interrupting, but I understand the emperor might well adopt a grown man.
1: Yeah, Um, and in fact, ancient adoption is... Is not at all like our adoption. We think of adoption, by and large, as adoption of babies or young children. In Rome, it had always been a way of getting an heir. You know, if you go back two hundred years before uh, the the rule of the emperors, there were families who wanted to pass on property, and they would do it by adopting a grown son. Um, and the emperors continue that tradition, and for a while it works. There's a time in the second century CE, the time that Edward Gibbon, when he was writing about the decline and fall, said it was, um, you know, the the best time ever to be alive, um, when apparently seamlessly... the empire was handed down from one adopted heir to the next. But it wasn't always like that.
0: Now, emperors uh, tended to treat predecessors as uh, as good and great, thus cementing their own position. But conversely, when an emperor was assassinated, there was also a character assassination.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think Rome, the Roman kind of imperial kind of lineup is full of people who either have gone down as absolutely ghastly, people like Caligula or Domitian, or upstanding blokes like Vespasian, who is a real hard worker and a decent guy. Now, it's quite easy, I think, to imagine that that is how they were. And up to a point, that might have been how they were. But the Roman Empire is really an absolute extreme example of history written by the winners or the successors. So if you come to the throne after your father has um, died and there's there's a kind of unproblematic succession, you have every incentive to big up your dad if on the other hand you are the new boy who has come in after the previous emperor has been assassinated you have every incentive to completely vilify him now <laughs> i mean i think it's a moral here because you know you might have been he might have been assassinated because he was ghastly and we can't rule that possibility out but also even if he wasn't ghastly the assassins and the new regime would make sure he went down in history like that.
0: There's an echo here of what used to happen in ancient Egypt, where one pharaoh would often literally deface his predecessor. The face of the would would be chiselled off all the monum- monumental statues.
1: Yeah, and Romans have a have something a bit similar, but um, they're perhaps even more inventive actually because. Um, there are a whole series of portraits that we've identified as being portraits of Roman emperors, which look as if when one guy has died, <laughs> they don't just deface him or throw him in the river or whatever. They re-chisel the face <laughs> so it looks like the new bloke on the throne. <laughs> now, I think that there might, we might learn from this, actually, in our modern statue wars. The re-chiseling faces might be a good. idea.
0: Mary, your book covers the day-to-day lives of the emperors, where they ate or what they ate, where they lived and how they entertained, even where they went for their holidays. Now tell me, does Hollywood ever get it right with the banquet scenes, you know, low tables with reclining guests served by slaves and opulent surroundings dominated by a water feature?
1: Yes, Hollywood in this case gets it pretty right. I have to say, they they don't make it quite weird enough. And it's it's most Hollywood um, banqueting scenes are, are luxurious with a bit of sex, um, but not quite the weirdness that we read about in Roman writing. I mean, there are. Um, uh, all kinds of entertainers at dinner that you rarely see in Hollywood who come and, um, you know, r- ruffle up um, the guests or if they go to sleep, uh, wake them up. And they're called coprii, some of these. And um, I hope it's a right to say what this literally translates as, um, because that literally means the little shits. And so you have a dinner party and you've got all sorts of maybe music, maybe poetry going on. But you've got these little guys, these jokesters going around playing pranks on on the guests. And sometimes the emperor plays pranks on the guests. I mean, um, one little known emperor, Elagabalus, um, is supposedly the inventor of the whoopee cushion because he used to put his guests on on inflatable cushions don't quite know what that looked like in ancient rome and he had slaves going around during the evening letting the air out of the cushion <laughs> so that these poor guests ended up on the floor so yeah hollywood has sort of got it right mary it right.
0: i've got to introduce the whoopee cushion to this program for uh, <laughs> guests that annoy me now I'd, what happens? Should I accept an invitation to a black-themed dinner
1: party? Yes. Well, we all get invitations if we're in the upper crust in Rome—not the rest, you know, not the vast majority—but us upper crust, we we would like to have and probably would receive an invitation occasionally to dinner uh, at the Imperial Palace. And there's one amazing occasion. Uh, from the end of the first century CE, where the upper crust, a few of them get invited to dinner. They show up and they discover that everything is painted black. The couches are black, the vessels they're eating off are black. Next to their couches, there's a silver stone with their name on, but it's in the shape of a tombstone. And the slaves <laughs> serving them are painted black, and the emperor is talking only about death. And they think, oh, blimey, <laughs> <So, laughs> our last hour has arrived. What do we do? <laughs> so they sit it out and in the end of the evening, the Empress says, oh, very nice to see you, everybody. Bye-bye. Um, so they go home feeling hugely relieved. Um, they get home and then there's a knock at the door and they go out and they think, this is going to be the hit squad. You know, This is my last hour. But what they discover are group of palace porters bringing them all the valuable utensils and tombstones that they'd had at dinner, bringing them there as a gift from the emperor. (laughs) Now, it's it's a wonderful story because it's a nice, nice indication of how emperors could scare the wits out of you, (laughs) even by being generous.
0: Now, the Romans didn't uh, like tyranny, yet... uh, they went along with the one man rule for a few hundred years. Is there anything about the nature of autocracy in modern times that we can learn from the emperors of Rome?
1: I think there is actually, and I think it's in um, our reactions to it. And um, what struck me when I was writing the book was that the rule of the emperor was was partly. Underpinned by violence. I would not possibly um, deny that. But that isn't what kept the Roman Empire running. What kept the rule of the emperors on the on the show, you know, on the on the go was the fact that most people went along with it. Most people cooperated or collaborated. They kept their heads down. They were perhaps, you know, they enjoyed some of the perks. They maybe muttered late at night, but they did not object to it. And the Roman Empire, the rule of the emperors, is, you know, a great, a great oh, chilling example of how people will go along with autocracy. And we better learn that, you know, if democracy is fragile. Um, it will become more fragile unless we actually are brave enough to stand up for it.
0: My guest has been the Empress of uh, British classicists, uh, and that is Dame Winifred Mary Beard. Her latest book is uh, Emperors of Rome, Ruling the Ancient Roman World, and it's published by Alan and Unwin. Mary, you're wonderful.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's been great to be with you. (music)